0: Hello everyone. We are finally one week away from the launch of our brand new Abingdon campus. One week away next weekend. And uh, a lot of them are joining us today. They're over there kind of having like a practice service, like a dry run. We call it a soft launch. So a bunch of them are there. So we want you to know Abingdon people, the rest of the campuses. We love you. We are grateful for you. We can't wait to see what happens. I want to make sure we get that this is like all of us, not just those people that are going to do Abingdon, like all campuses, this, there's something really important, especially in these last six days, if I could just call us all together as a, as a whole mountain church, would you uh, please devote yourself and take seriously and ask to do two things? Uh, would you please, all of us, Edgewood, Bel Air, Mountain Road, and the Abingdon campuses, um, would you pray? Let's pray. Would you pray? I would love it if you would commit to try your best to pray every day for the launch of this campus. Launch. Uh, pray, pray, for, um, pray for God's favor and God's blessing. Pray for the people who have been invited. Pray that lots of people would show up who need a fresh touch from God, who need Jesus in their life, who maybe are burned out on church, whatever. Pray for those people. Pray for the volunteers who are serving. Um, there's about 350 who are serving in different roles at Abondon Campus, 125 of them for the first time they've ever served at Mountain. Uh, pray for them and their families. Um, pray for the technology. Pray, pray that as impressive as the building is, everyone will know it's all about Jesus. Just pray about that, okay? Second, um, and I, I say this all the time, some of you don't take me seriously, I'm telling you, would you would, what if everyone invited someone for next week? Just imagine what God might do with that. Now, you don't have to be going to the Abaddon campus. If you are, obviously invite people. Get them there, especially, if you, you know, anyone who doesn't have a church home. But I, yesterday I saw a guy. I said, hey, uh, you ought to go to our new Abaddon campus. He says, well, I live in Cecil County. He's like, doesn't matter. Well, whatever. You know, invite them to whatever campus you're near and, or invite them to our At the movie series, which starts next weekend. There's a lot just, I just believe if we'll pray and we'll put ourselves out there a little bit and invite, I think God's going to do something, and, and we just leave it up to him. Okay, so that's where we are. Hey, we're all um, watching the news, obviously, and uh, we have um, our minds and hearts kind of anxiously watching to see what happens with Irma and all. Um, We have some folks joining us. I just met some here uh, who have been evacuated and are joining us here. We have several online who are joining us right now uh, from Central Florida and other places uh, uh, worshiping with us today. Wherever you are hold up in a center or with family, we want to welcome you as well. But it just seemed important before we dove into the message. It just feels like a time where we just need to pray together. Uh, about everything, uh, do you, does that sound right to you too? Let's let's do that. So, just all of our campuses, online, wherever you are, and uh, would you just join with the people around you? Let's go to God in prayer uh, uh, today. Uh, God, you are the Lord of the raging sea and the Lord of the sky, earth, and wind, and the Lord of our lives. Your Word says that you reach down from on high and took me out of the deep waters and rescued me. And I I, I think those words are probably words that are so important for people uh, who have been so drastically or or, or are about to be so drastically affected. In Texas and Louisiana especially, we think of the devastation of Harvey and we know that you care in special ways about anyone who's displaced or whose homes or lives are upset. And so, for those who have had so much already rained down on them, we ask you to bring showers of your blessing and your favor and grace on them as they rebuild and recover. We pray for all those who are in the path of Irma already or maybe about to be affected by it, evacuating, houses gone, businesses in question, people frightened families separated, waiting to see what happens with these fierce winds. God, we do ask for your mercy. We ask you to divert Irma's path or lessen its strength in the same way that Jesus calmed a storm so many years ago. We, We pray, Lord, that you would use this storm, whatever happens, as a way of drawing many people to yourself. Through the strength and might of it, might people turn to your strength and might. Through the circumstances of upheaval or fear, God, we ask you to use Irma for your purposes in the lives of many people. And then guide us here at Mountain and all your people everywhere and churches everywhere that we would just truly be the church and do what we do when we're at our best and make you look good. And Lord, also on this weekend and in these next few days when we remember the destruction of 9-11, it's just yet another way that we see how much our world and the whole planet needs you. A reminder of how all creation seems to be groaning for redemption. And so we pray for peace and calm. Not just in weather fronts, but on the human front. We pray for peace and calm between nations, between races, between political parties, between people in our communities, and in our own homes. And Lord, I know that there are so many listening right now and praying here that have something of a storm brewing inside our own hearts. We're upset and worried or fearful about so many things, so right now, Lord, we welcome Jesus who calms any storm and who alone can bring the peace we desperately seek, and we pray these things through him and in his name, amen, amen, okay. Uh, So, school's back in session. Who's pretty fired up about that? Yeah, a lot of moms and dads got their hands up in the air, yeah, some kids, that's good. What that means is that for many people, vacation season is a little bit past, but listen to what I'm about to tell you, because I'm going to give you a vacation destination that is going to blow your socks off. I promise it's where you're going to want to go next year on your vacation. So get ready to write a few things down so you don't miss it. This is where you want to go. First of all, you go to Minneapolis, and then you go west on Highway 12, about an hour and a half, to a little town called Darwin, Minnesota, population 347. And then take County Road 14 to the south, and it will take, You just aim for the water tower. And when you get to the water tower, right next to the water tower, there it is. It is one of Minnesota's cultural prizes. It is something that people travel the world to see. You all know what I'm talking about. It is the world's largest ball of twine. There it is, Darwin, Minnesota. And it sits enshrined in a little gazebo with plexiglass that's a little stained. You can't, you have to get in close to see it, but you can smell it. It's amazing. It's a treasure. It's where you're going to want to go next year, to the ball of twine in Minnesota. It all started in 1950. Francis Johnson apparently didn't know what to do with himself through the long, cold Minnesota winter. And it was before Netflix. So he goes to his basement. He starts making a little ball of twine. And he does it the next day. And he starts doing it every day for hours for years. And 29 years later, that ball of twine is 12 foot tall and weighs about 19 tons. All right? Excuse me, 9 tons. Oh, only 9 tons. The guy died of emphysema. Eventually, the town figured that 30 years of twine dust killed him. But his accomplishment sits there, proudly enshrined there in Minnesota in that little gazebo, which, of course, is, as you can imagine, a red-hot tourist destination for people. If you haven't heard the song by Weird Al Yankovic about the family that goes to visit the Ball of Twine, you can also catch that on my Facebook page, which I posted this week, which itself, the song is also a cultural, classy piece of art like the Ball of Yarn, uh, Twine is. So there's your next vacation spot, folks. That's where you want to go next summer or whenever you can. Try to go in August because that's when Twine Ball days are. Be sure to stop by the Twine Ball Museum and the Twine Ball Gift Shop. Pick up a little... um, twine ball keychain for yourself or a little miniature replica twine ball and pick up a twine ball postcard which looks like this by the way and I love the words it says greetings from the twine ball wish you were here imagine how jealous your friends will be When they get that postcard from you, when you go off the beaten path, you find those little gems, you know, that you just can't find on the main thoroughfares. And that's what this series has been about, is a chance for us to go to some of the lesser known, less frequently visited places, people, and passages of the Bible off the beaten path. And what we found out is that there are treasures that are way cooler and much more important and valuable than a ball of twine, haven't we? And since it's the last installment of this series, it seemed like it might be a good idea to do a little review. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Some of you uh, are brand new and you weren't here. Some of you have bad memories. Some of you slept through every sermon, whatever. Let's review, okay? Let's take some time. We started out this journey off the beaten path where Luke took us to meet Shipra and Pua. Chippur and Pua, these two Hebrew midwives, the king had ordered, kill all the Jewish babies. They said, not going to do it. And they just quietly went about their work. And that's how Moses gets born and then raised. And he's the one who begins then the process of delivering God's people, which is a good reminder for all of us just to do your jobs, faithful, small, ordinary, everyday things God uses in big ways. And then Rob took us to meet Josiah, And Josiah is a great reminder to blow the dust off our roadmaps, off of our Bibles, and to just remember how precious and life-giving God's Word really is, and every one of us has to decide whether God's Word is actually going to guide your life or not. And then we met Habakkuk, who helps us see how to hold on to faith, even when life is really hard. And Pastor Roger Storms was here and shared the story of his son Jeremy and his death. And a reminder of how all of us, like Habakkuk, can have a kind of, I'm going to hold on to God no matter what is going on in my life, kind of faith. And then Nathan took us to meet Micaiah, Micaiah Benimla, who taught us that sometimes following Jesus means you've got to take kind of the road less traveled, and you'll be asked to speak up for God and speak truth, even when it's unpopular and nobody wants to hear it. And then we met Zephaniah, who came at us with boxing gloves and punched us in the face, as prophets sometimes do, to remind us how serious a matter it is when we stray from God, when we disobey God and go our own way, and how desperate he is to get us back, and that it's never too late for any of us to make a U-turn. And then last week, Luke took us to J.L. and Deborah. Helped us see that in a world that's chaotic and crazy and violent, and when life is all upset, people really need God more than ever. And they need someone to lead them to God, and they need, they need God. And that brings us to today, when we're going to meet a little-known fella from the Bible. And I'll say I've always felt drawn to this guy, And the reason I think is obvious Uh, number one, he likes to go out in the snow, and so do I. His name is Ben, so is mine. And he apparently hates cats. (laughs) Before we get a chance to meet him, let me give you a little background. All right? We're going to that time in Israel's history when David is king, it's found in the Old Testament. First uh, and second Samuel. Remember, we look at the Old Testament. Here we go. Genesis, where it? Here it is right here. First and second Samuel. It used to be one book. They divided it in two because it was easier to carry. tells the story of first Samuel. is the story of all the stuff of David getting ready to be king, God anointing a little shepherd boy. Second Samuel is when David is king and what he does. He is the shepherd of God's people. And so we find uh, this book of second Samuel, being all about David who's anointed as God's king and part of God's plan then to bring his people Israel back to himself which means he's going to need to strengthen the nation of Israel and he's going to need a strong leader and he's going to need a leader who can help even overcome some military opposition because there's lots of people who don't want God's people to be strong but that's the way God's promises are going to be fulfilled so he needs that leader And David is that leader, the man after God's own heart. First thing he does is gather a bunch of folk, and they go into Jerusalem, and they take the city back, and God's plan begins to unfold. That's why they still call it the city of David. But all these conquests and all this great kingdom building as fulfilling God's plans, the Bible makes it clear David didn't do any of it alone. He had around him a tough and loyal Band of brothers who fought with him and fought for him because they knew that's how they could advance God's purposes. First Chronicles 11 tells about some of these guys. They were the chiefs of David's mighty men. And they, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. And then this is the list of David's mighty men. It goes on to list their names. But isn't that an awesome name? The mighty men of David. Isn't that awesome? I love that, you know, mighty men. Now, what's interesting to remember is they didn't start out that way as a noble, great, stately group of mighty men. They started out as a bunch of pretty rough, pathetic-sounding guys. Because you've got to remember, David himself didn't start out like a great big regal king, stately and established. He started out like a little punk, a little runt on the run for his life in a desperate situation, right? King, He's, he's anointed as king, but King Saul's on the throne and King Saul's trying to kill him, chase him around the countryside, trying to throw a spear at him. At one point, David's hiding out in caves. Another time, he has to act insane. He's drooling down his beard, and he's scratching the walls to make everyone think he's crazy so he can get away with his life. This is David. He's, he's not some established, distinguished king. He's just a scrambling desperado that God is called to serve. So in First Samuel twenty one, he's literally hiding out in a cave, running for his life. I think of like Saddam Hussein, if you remember those days of him hiding out in a cave. That's what I picture. And then slowly, his brothers and his family and a bunch of guys start gathering and swelling around David, saying, "Wait, we're going to rise up and get the king, to get, get David on the throne." But listen now to what kind of guys start gathering around David. First Samuel chapter twenty two, verse one: All those who were in distress or in debt, or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men with him. In other words, a bunch of guys you don't even want really dating your daughter, say, we got nothing better to do, we got nothing to lose, David, you're the leader, let's go. And they start gathering these misfits and these rogue, vagrant, rabble-rouser dropouts, and these then, out of that 400, some of them rise to the top, and over time they become these experienced, valiant, noble Fighters and leaders and righteous warriors for God and the cream of the crop, the Navy Seals, the special operative forces among them become the mighty men, and some shine even among the mighty men. And that's what we're going to talk about today. They were super loyal, courageous, and they do all these amazing feats, but really they're just tenacious and courageous, and then God shows up and does supernatural stuff through them. They're also extremely loyal to God's plan and to David. One time David was uh, in a cave, and um, he's kind of thirsty, and he just says a throwaway remark. He says, man, what I wouldn't give for a drink of water from that old well in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem at the time was garrisoned and protected and occupied by the Philistines, the enemy army. But his men were so loyal and loved him so much. You know what they did that night? In the cover of darkness, they went and they broke through Philistine lines and went to that well in Bethlehem, drew up water, and brought it back in a flask to him and offered it at risk of their own lives. And David was so touched and humbled by that and their expression of love and support. He couldn't even drink it. He poured it out on the ground as a, as a way of saying thank you. And this is something of the nature of these mighty men. And we come to the end of David's life then. 2 Samuel tells about the end of his life and some of David's last words, but before the writer leaves us, he says, wait, we must have a ceremony to honor and remember all of the amazing mighty men who made all this possible. And so he lists them all, and you can read them in your Bible, like 37 of them listed there. And uh, you have crazy names to us, Joshua, Bathsheba, and uh, Eliezer, and Shammai, and Abishai, and a whole bunch of other crazy names. And then... One of the top guys who loved to go out in the snow, apparently hated cats, and whose name was Ben. Well, sort of. Actually, let's look. 2 Samuel 2320. Benaiah. Everybody say Benaiah. We could call him Ben if we wanted, couldn't we? Son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. I want that on my tombstone, Somebody. Ben performed great exploits. Like what? His heroic deeds included striking down Moab's two mightiest warriors. And he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He's a bad dude. Next verse. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Beniah went against him with only a little club. He wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. This is like junior higher boys would like this part of the Bible. I mean, this is like UFC fighting great stuff. And that's Beniah. What an amazing guy. To help you get a picture of that scene right there and what kind of guy Beniah was, here's a picture of me uh, with Kerry O'Neill. Now, Kerry was a professional basketball player. He was here to speak for an FCA banquet here at Mountain. And I'm pretty tall. And... <laughs> But I only come up to about his shoulder. He's like seven feet. The Egyptian guy would have been taller and carries a skinny little dude. So take him out of a suit, put him in an Egyptian warrior thing, and and make him about 350 pounds. You can kind of picture, maybe look more like this is what what Benaiah was, was up against. And the Bible says all he had was a little club. I did a little work on that. The Hebrew word actually means twig. Or a little stick. It's the same word like if, um, if a parent was going to discipline a child, like a little switch. So you got some 350-pound Egyptian who's mad as heck with a spear. He's seven and a half feet tall. He's charging toward you. Ah! wants to kill you with a long spear. You've got a yardstick. But you're tenacious and courageous and believe God's going to help you, and somehow shh, some little ninja God move, I don't know what he does, he gets the thing, and he kills him, and we're still talking about it today. That's Benaiah. That's amazing. Next verse, 22, says this. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Deeds like these made him as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David Put him in charge of his bodyguard. So David sees this guy. He says, You're in charge of the Secret Service. Another part of the Bible tells us that he was the head of the mercenary forces. Some of David's non-Jewish people that he had fighting for him. Sometimes he's also um, there's so many other things we could tell you about Beniah. He uh, he's the guy who ensures that Solomon gets on the throne when David is about to die. Everybody knows he wants. Solomon, and that's God's plan. But some other people said, "No, we're going to." Adonijah makes a run at the throne, but it's Beniah who brings his mercenary army in and makes sure that Solomon is the one who becomes the king, according to God's will. Which is where David, where Jesus' family line came out of. Beniah did that. Solomon makes him the head of the whole army. He the five-star general over everything, skillful, trustworthy, smart, loyal guy. That's Beniah. Now, what about the whole lion thing? Right here's where um, we can miss some cool wordplay in in uh, in the Bible. Our English versions will usually say something like this, um, verse twenty: uh, He killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. Um, so when you read that, you think, okay, some guy named Ariel had two sons, and and uh, Beniah killed them. But a lot of Old Testament scholars have noted that the word ariel is very similar to the Hebrew word for lion, which is "arya," And that's why some translations, like if you have King James, it'll read that Benaiah killed two lion-like men. So I don't know if they had big hair, but I don't think that's what it meant. So you see, that all kind of makes sense, and it makes Benaiah's life even more epic, doesn't it? It would read more like this. Benaiah was a mighty man. He killed two amazing fighters who were as strong and as brave as lions. And the dude actually killed a real lion. So, why did he kill a lion? We don't know. Bible doesn't really say anything about that. So there's lots of theories. Why do you think he might have? I don't know. Maybe the lion was terrorizing the townspeople. Maybe it attacked him maybe it had made a little den in the town cistern and that was freaking everybody out some even think it might have been a mercy killing like it was a wounded animal and he had to put it out of its misery we don't know here's what here's what's absolutely clear however going into a snowy pit when there's a lion in there is absolutely insane can we agree on that part that's nuts now here's where some of us part ways um, some of you know I'm not real big on cats. I do feel it's supported in the Bible, as you can see here. I mean, apparently we're supposed to weed them out. It's, it's what it's what it's it's what it's saying. They're a menace. I think it's what it's getting at. I don't know. I think God for sure created dogs. Cats might have come after the fall. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Take take a take a picture. Take a look at this cat, and you tell me if it looks like a blessing or a curse. I don't know. We, might, we probably disagree, a lot of us, on cats. You don't have to write me emails, and you can still love me and I love you even though we disagree on that. I bet we all agree on this. Wild, big cats like lions are kind of scary. Can we agree on that much? Because they can crush your skull with one bite and claw you to death. So can you picture yourself? Can you picture Benaiah going down into that snowy pit? There's a lion in there. Are you crazy? Prowling and growling. Yeah, some of you just joined us. You're welcome. You're awake again. Great. (laughs) Welcome back to the sermon. (laughs) Lions are scary, right? And it's snowing. Let's be honest. You're Marylanders. If there's an inch of snow on the sidewalk, the only place you're going is to the grocery store to get toilet paper. You ain't going into a lion pit. But sometimes that's exactly where you need to go because here's the principle let me give you the principle the path to god's plan for your life and the path to your best potential who you're really meant to be usually runs straight through fear there's a place where you are and there's a place where god wants you to be where you need and could be but that path goes right through fear you got to face the lion You got to go into the snowy pit, or you'll never get where God wants you to be and where you need to be. So you might as well start thinking about what your lion is and what you're going to do about it. Some of you have heard me tell about several years ago when I was in Africa on a mission trip, we did a lot of work in the city, and then afterwards we went out on this sort of decompressed thing. It was a safari, and we were out in the middle of nowhere in the safari thing, right? And so we're we're camping out, and there's this little compound with a fence around it, and I decided I got to get some exercise. I got to go for a run, and I noticed right outside the gate... This guy goes out with uh, some stuff, garbage, and so I just went outside the gate, and I noticed that there was a little running trail out right outside the gate of the compound. It was about a mile all the way around. I thought, well, that'll work great. And I, I know you're listening going, what an idiot. I am think- I wasn't thinking that way. It like, seemed like a good idea. So here I am running outside the gate in the middle of the... Yeah, what is that? Thank you. Yeah, Masai Mara. And as I'm coming around a, a corner, at one of the corners of the compound, there in this thicket of growth is a large wild cat. I don't even know what it was. A cougar, jaguar, lion, whatever it was. About the size of a black lab. Sitting there looking at me, you know, the way cats do. (laughs) And honestly, I've probably never been as scared in my life. And so, just instantly, I just took off, did my best Usain Bolt imitation and I just Ran knowing that in the next one or two seconds, I would know whether I would live or die. I imagined razor-sharp teeth and fangs clawing me to death slowly and leaving me for the hyenas as some kind of karma for all the cat jokes I had ever made. (laughs) I'm running as fast as I can, my feet barely touching the ground. And after about 100 yards, I swallowed my heart and I looked over my shoulder, A, I was still alive and be no cat. That's what Ben does when he sees a big cat. Run away. But not Beniah. This guy doesn't run away. He goes after the lion. Mark Batterson says, people with real faith in God, they don't run from their lions. They chase after them. Listen, normal people don't do that, okay? We agreed, normal people don't go into a snowy pit after a lion. Normal people don't face a lion. Do you know what else? Normal people don't live by faith in God either. Normal people don't have a real story to tell about what God did in their life. Normal people settle Normal people have excuses, and they have lots of fears that dominate their life, and they have lots of regrets. And normal people pray tame, safe, little, predictable prayers to a tame, safe, predictable God so that nothing upsets their tame, safe, predictable life. That's why the pathway to where you need to be is on the other side of some of your fears, and you just got to go through a cave with a, a little lion in it to get there. It's called growth. It's called trust. It's called faith. It's called change. And it's what the Christian life is meant to be. So, what about you? What are you afraid of? Can you can you name the lion? I mean, we're afraid of so many things, right? Afraid of failure. We're afraid of uh, not being good enough. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid it might not work. We're afraid of running out of money. We're afraid of dying. We're afraid of someone leaving us. But the path to God's plans and your potential lies on the other side of fear. So what's God calling you to push through? What fear is he calling you to push through so you can become the person he's calling you to be and you can, he can unleash his divine assignment in your life that you won't experience if you don't? There's a ministry bubbling around inside of some of you, a burden that's a holy, righteous cause, and you just keep pushing it down because you don't have time or you're afraid. Some of us have an obedience issue, something God is asking you to do or stop doing, and you know it, but you're afraid of what would happen if you tried to obey. So you're running from a cat. I won't lie to you. It's um, It's scary to face lions sometimes. I mean, they have teeth, right? I get it. You don't always know what could happen. I bet Benaiah didn't know when he went down in the cave how it was going to turn out. It's scary to face your anger problem or admit that you have some other kind of issue, problem. It's scary to be vulnerable. It, it, it's scary to take any kind of risk. It's scary to sign up for a ministry and offer to serve somewhere around Mountain. It's scary to launch in campus. Lots could happen there. It's scary to invite someone who doesn't look like you to a meal, even though you've sensed maybe God's urging you to do it. It can be scary to talk about your faith. It can be scary to go on a mission trip. It can be scary to invite someone to church. It can be scary to stand up for your faith. It can be scary to join a small group. It can be scary to tell the truth about yourself in your small group. It can be scary to give up sin. We don't know what it would be like if we didn't have it. But it's true, isn't it? Breakthrough comes on the other side of fear, and you got to face it. you got to go into the pit and face that lion. Here's what else I can promise you. People with a great big God, they have little lions. People with a big God, the bigger the God, the smaller the lion. Show me your lion, I'll show you your God. So how big is your God? Too often, we're looking at the lion. We should be looking at God. Stop looking over our shoulder. Start looking at God. Stop looking at excuses and start looking at God. God's made you and me to be like Beniah, who was was just courageous and tenacious enough to go do it and left the results to God. I think God took care of that lion. Same way he did with Daniel. Same way he can with yours. There's one other thing probably important to say. It's important to remember that playing it safe is actually very risky. Playing it safe in life is... Sometimes the worst risk you could ever take is being afraid to take one. The worst mistake you could make is being so afraid of mistakes that you don't do anything, right? So are you willing to risk a little bit? Sometimes you've got to choose between the easy thing and the hard thing. Sometimes the right thing is the hard thing, and you've got to do it even though it has teeth. And here's, the thing I, here's the thing God promises. Anytime you go into a pit and chase a lion, you face your fear, you do something hard, and it's the right thing for God in your life, you meet God in a special way in those times like you never would otherwise. We know this, right? It's when we're finally a little afraid, when we finally have a little faith, when we finally give some room for God to show up because the disease or the problem or the challenge or the mission was bigger than us and we couldn't fix it on our own. And now, just a little bit scared, we get to experience why the Bible says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. He's not looking for you to go kill the lion. He's looking for you to get in the pit and let him take care of the lion. So today you've got a decision to make. Are you going to chase your lion or are you going to let it chase you? That's a question about how big your God is. Yes, it has fangs and can't say it won't snag your clothes. But It's a question about your God. The bigger your God, the bigger your God, the smaller your lion. So I leave you with this. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 20 and 21, now to him, all glory to God, who is able to do anything through his mighty power. Who's mighty? David's mighty men? No. You? No. God is mighty. Through his mighty power, it's at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever ask or imagine. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever, amen. God, help us to be lion chasers, to see you as bigger than any fear and to arrive at the place that you want us to be and we long to be because we got off of the beaten path of what's normal and started following you in faith. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen.